Turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We will pick up in verse 17. If you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible so that you can follow along. Any Bibles tonight? Isaiah needs a Bible. He should know by now. Isaiah, you should know by now. (laughs) Bring your Bible, Isaiah. That little young man has a calling on his life. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 17, Paul writes and he says, Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example or a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. And whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation, or our citizenship, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself as citizens of the united states of america you and i experience certain rights certain privileges and certain responsibilities that go along with the fact that we are citizens here in this country our rights as american citizens according to the bill of rights in the constitution of our our uh, country is that we have the right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have the right as American citizens to to have a voice, to lend a voice, and to play a part in the governing of our country. Yes, it's less and less, but nevertheless, we still do have a voice and a responsibility, a right to play a part in government here in this country. We have a right to own private property and personal possessions. A right to bear arms and protect ourselves, not only nationally, but also individually and personally. These are rights that are afforded to us because we're citizens of this country. And ultimately, we have the right to live within the framework of the Constitution that makes our nation or defines what our nation is. Not only do we have rights, but being citizens, we also have privileges, We're the natural-born beneficiaries of the blessing that God has bestowed upon our country. We're beneficiaries of the labor and the sacrifice and the toil that our forefathers went to to provide us with the privileges that we have today in the free enterprise system that we experience. We are beneficiaries of the prosperity and the provision that's available through that. We have the privilege of the security and the military infrastructure that's been erected around us to protect us. And we have a sense of well-being. It's a privilege that we enjoy as citizens of this country. 
And we have the right and the privilege to utilize and employ, if we're traveling abroad, the superstructure, superpower status that our nation has as an advantage to us when we're traveling overseas. However, with those rights and with those privileges that we have, there are also certain responsibilities that we have because we are citizens of the United States of America. We have legal and assumed responsibilities. We are responsible to abide by the laws of the land, to conduct ourselves in order and in compliance with the standards and laws that have been set over us. You know, we have that responsibility. We have the responsibility to protect and to preserve the rights and privileges and also the interests of national security around us. And we have the responsibility to live according to the national values that we hold as a, as a country without exploiting or abusing the rights and privileges that we have. Now, being a citizen of the United States of America is a blessing and a privilege that is highly sought after amongst peoples of other nations in the world. It's a highly coveted prize. Because of the framework of our free enterprise system and the economic strength that we enjoy, and because of the prosperity and the peace and the protection that's afforded to us through our government and through our nation, really, through the people, along with the knowledge of how those things have advanced us as an entity, as a nation, that has made it a highly coveted thing to be a citizen of the United States of America. That is true. People in other countries want to be in this country to enjoy what we have. Now, that was also true in Paul's day. Not of the United States of America, but of Rome. Rome was the superpower of Paul's day. And the desire of the peoples in the world was to be a citizen of Rome. We read in the book of Acts a number of times that Paul used his green card or his passport, if you would, his documents that declared him to be a Roman citizen. He used that a couple of times to get himself out of trouble. So powerful was that privilege that Paul possessed that it actually struck fear in the hearts of those that were persecuting him because they had laid their hands on him without a fair trial. One of the soldiers that was arresting and really speaking with Paul, said that it cost me a great sum to become a Roman citizen. And Paul declared, well, I was born free. And that, you know, privilege in that day to be a Roman citizen was highly sought after. And Philippi, the city to which Paul is addressing here in this letter, they were a colony of Rome. And thus, it afforded them superpower status as a colony of Rome. Now, in our text tonight, verses 17 through 21, the Apostle Paul employs the concept of citizenship in a country or citizenship to a nation in order to, you know, not highlight the privileges of being a Roman, but rather to point out that you and I, as born-again Christians... We are citizens of a different kingdom. That you and I hold a right, a privilege, a citizenship to a kingdom that is not of this world. And therefore, 
Because of that, we have a brand new set of rights and privileges, but we also have certain responsibilities because of the citizenship that we hold as being citizens, as he calls it there in verse 20, of heaven. So what are the rights, privileges, and responsibilities that reflect our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? The apostle begins in verse 17 by establishing that there is a pattern for recognizing citizenship among God's people. There is a pattern for recognizing citizenship. Look with me at verse 17 there. He says, brethren, be followers together of me. And mark them which walk so, as you have us for an example, or for a pattern, as a pattern of this citizenship. In other words, what Paul is saying is that there are certain common characteristics that are held equally amongst the people of God. That there are things that you can identify or recognize in the life of one of God's people that is a clear indication that they do in fact belong to Christ and that their citizenship is secured in the heavenly realm. In the year 2007, I went on a short-term mission to England. It was the first time that I had been in Europe. And in fact, it was the only time that I've been in Europe. But, but while I was there, I was really enjoying the, just the experience of being in a, another country in a different place. And I would talk to the local people that, you know, that were there. And I, I love the accent. You know, I always tried to mimic it, but I could never get it where they would believe it. You know, <laughs> to you, you could, because you, you know, you don't know, maybe you don't. You're like, no, no, don't do that again. Okay. But but, but I would always try to fool people with, with my accent. But no matter how much I tried to fool them, they always knew that I was an American. No matter how much I tried. Sometimes, you know, not even with the speech, but any way that I would try, I just couldn't fool them. They knew that I was an American. And so finally I asked and I said, well, how do, how do you always know? How can you always pull out someone who's an American? And they said, well, there's three things that always give you guys away. You're all the same. Number one is that you have this air of superiority. That was a that very politically correct way of saying you're arrogant, you know. <laughs> you guys are arrogant. You're full of yourselves, you know. Okay, check. You got that one, you know. The second is the way you dress. You, you, you dress like the people on TV. You look ridiculous, they said, you know. <laughs> and the number three is that you can always pull out an American because they talk so loud. We don't do that here. You know, people talk. They just talk to each other. They don't talk to everybody, you know, as they're going. And so what he was saying is that we can always identify you guys and where you're from because you give yourselves away. There's certain aspects, there's things about you that that we just know. We know what's going on, where you're from because of all of that. It's interesting that as Paul begins this section, And he begins talking about the identifiable characteristics of those that have claimed Christ. He he, he points us to, or he shows us, not outward things that we can observe with our eyes, but rather inward, invisible things that we can only observe through people's lives or through their behavior. Look at verse 17 again. He says, be followers together of me and mark them, notice this, which walk. Which walk. Now, if you've been trekking with us for any amount of time as we've been working our way through the epistles, this isn't the first time we've come across this word walk. 
And any time that you see the word walk there in the Bible, it's not speaking of a leisurely stroll that you would take in the park on a Monday afternoon. But rather, it's a way that it describes the lifestyle of a person. The way that they conduct themselves and behave themselves while they're working their way through their lives. And Paul says it isn't the outward things that you observe or even the things that you hear or the things that you you see outwardly in a person's life that show you or demonstrate that they are a citizen of heaven. But rather, it's things that you observe when they walk. In other words, Paul would say, when I see someone that has a Christian t-shirt on, to me that means nothing. When I hear someone say, praise the Lord... Or when I see somebody sitting across from me in church and I see that they're in church, even the fact that they maybe have a Bible open and that their Bible is underlined. Paul said, I don't pay attention to any of that. None of those things are the identifying marks of someone who is a citizen of heaven. Paul would say that none of that means anything. It doesn't matter. None of that, because you can do all of those things and yet you can still not be a citizen, but yet you look at someone's walk And you notice it's not the outward things that define if somebody's saved, but rather it's the inward things. In many ways, it's only recognizable by Christians, the things that Paul is going to point out. Now, he begins his description in verses 18 and 19, not by telling us what citizens look like, not what believers look like, but he begins by giving us the contrast. Before he tells us the marks of the true citizens or the true believers... He gives us four marks of the make-believers. You know, those that pretend to be believers. Those that are posers, if you would. They're not real Christians, but they might wear a cross around their neck. They might wear a t-shirt or have a bumper sticker on their car. They might say, praise the Lord, or have a Bible or multiple Bibles at their house. But inwardly, they're not really Christians. And he begins by giving us the characteristics of those that say they know Christ, but inwardly, there's been no transformation, no true change within their lives. He begins there in verse uh, verse 18. In, In parentheses, he says, For many walk, and notice that, that they're in church. These people are walking. That means they're making some kind of claim that they know the Lord. There's something in them that that they are outwardly making a profession or saying that they came forward or saying that they are real. They're deceiving or they're, they're in our congregation. They're in our midst. They're walking among us. But yet, Paul's going to say that they are not of us. He says, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And so the first mark of somebody who is a make-believer or a poser or not truly a citizen of heaven, the first mark is in their allegiance. If you're taking notes, it's in their allegiance. He says that they are enemies, they are actually enemies to the cross of Christ. Though they may make a profession, though they may sing the songs, though they may lift their hands, though they may say all the right things inwardly underneath at the surface, when God looks at that individual, he sees somebody who is an enemy of the cross. Now, many of us and many Christian people wear a cross around their neck. And for many, the cross has become a symbol of identifying with Christ or with Christians. 
The first thought that many of us have when we see someone with a cross around their neck is that that person is a Christian. They're wearing a cross, so they must be a Christian. Well, to Paul, he wouldn't make that assumption. He would look at somebody and he would say that a cross is not a relic that you wear around your neck that gives some indication of what you are by signature, but rather the cross is something that's demonstrated through your life as you follow Jesus personally and obey his word practically. There are people that profess Christ that in reality are nothing more than enemies to the cross. Well, what does it mean to be an enemy of the cross? What does the cross represent? Well, first of all, the cross, first and foremost, represents a renunciation of your citizenship on earth. There's no such thing as dual citizenship in the Christian life. If you are a citizen of heaven, it means that you've renounced or handed in your passport for earth. You're no longer a citizen. When Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and you've heard this before, he asked the question. He said, who do men say that I am? And they gave their answers. Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say, and and they all had their answers, and Jesus heard them. And then Jesus asked the second question. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up first, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, good. But then he says this, he says, Simon bar Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my father, which is in heaven, he has revealed it to you. It was the first time that Jesus publicly came out in front of his disciples and admitted to them that he was, in fact, the Christ, that he was the Messiah, the Savior, the one that came to redeem and rescue Israel in all that that represented, the fulfillment of all that the prophets had spoken of, the culmination of the hope of every Israeli was in the coming of the Christ, and now Jesus was revealing to his disciples that he was, in fact, that Christ. And in the mind of Peter and James and John and the apostles that were there listening to him that day, and that day, they had visions of revolution. The Christ raising up an army and overthrowing the oppressive yoke of Rome that had been overshadowing Israel for decades now. Someone who is going to usher in a time of peace and prosperity and blessing a thousand years or beyond the hope that all the Jews have had. And a certain excitement, a buzz filled their hearts as they recognized and realized who this man was that they were sitting with, that they were observing, that they were called by. And then, without missing a breath, Jesus goes on and he continues his speech to his disciples. And he told them, he said, we're going to Jerusalem. And when we get there, the Son of Man is going to suffer many things. And he's going to be betrayed. There's going to be treason amongst the ranks. And he's going to be killed. He's going to suffer. But he's going to rise. And Peter, who you know, kind of had that feather still in his cap from a moment ago when he came out with the declaration that Jesus was the Christ. Peter pulls Jesus aside. 
And he, and he says, Jesus, come here. He's like, listen, that's not going to happen. You're the Christ. And we're going to go down to Jerusalem, and, and you're going to call on all of the angels of God, and we're going to rise up against Pilate and against Herod and against this Roman oppression that we've been facing, and you're going to usher in your kingdom. This, this isn't going to happen. Lord, don't, don't talk. There's no suffering. The days of suffering are over. Lord, there's no battle. There's no betrayal. There's no death. That's not what this Christian thing is about. We're healing. We're, we're bringing a message of hope. You're talking about death and suffering. Lord, this, this is not a popular... Don't say this. And you know what Jesus said to Peter as Peter tried to teach Jesus something? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. For you savorest not the things which be of God, but the things which be of men. There is no crown, Peter, without a cross. There is no salvation, Peter, before there is first suffering. The cross is necessary in order to obtain glory. It's an irreplaceable ingredient in the plan of God concerning his kingdom and concerning his kids. That's you and I. You cannot escape it. And then Jesus went on there in Matthew uh, chapter 16, it is, and it's right around verse 24. After saying that, it says that Jesus said to his disciples this, and this reaches right to you and I as well. He says, if any man will come after me, that is, follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father. There's the glory. The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. And so a Christianity that doesn't embrace the cross is a false Christianity. Because the cross is where we come. Not, it's not an emblem. It's not a relic. It's not a symbol of identification. But rather it's something that we take up in our life. Wherein we are identifying with Christ. We're suffering alongside of Christ. And we're renouncing our citizenship to this world. We are saying like Jesus. I did not come to be glorified here. This is not home. This is not where it's at. I'm dying to this. And I will rise for what is eternal. And so the cross represents the total renunciation of citizenship upon the earth. It also stands for the renunciation of a lifestyle of sin. The Apostle Paul to the Roman church, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into jesus christ were baptized into his death 
The teaching of the Gnostics, which is still around today, was prevalent in Paul's day. The teaching that, well, listen, Jesus came to save my soul, and I will be spiritually resurrected, and therefore it's irrelevant what I do with my body now. If I want to fulfill the desires of my flesh and of my mind, that's okay because that's, that's temporal, that's earthly, that bears no significance. Paul says, what? He says, no. Know ye not that you who are in Christ, that you are dead to sin? It's no longer to have dominion over you. And so the cross of Christ represents being dead to the sinful nature and therefore the renunciation, the repentance, and the confession of our sins. The cross also represents our willingness to suffer with Christ in order to be obedient to Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter writes this. He says, For even hereunto were you called, you and I, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin... Neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, listen carefully, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. In other words, our calling in Christ is not a license or a liberty for us to sin or to live a life that's void or free of suffering. But rather, we're to be followers in his footsteps. Just as he denied his flesh and denied himself, as he took up his cross, he also calls us to the same thing. And this Christian life is not a rose-petaled path that's free of tribulation and persecution where everything is easy and prosperous and blessed and everything's a garden. It doesn't work like that. I think you know that by now if you've walked with the Lord for more than a week. This life is compassed with suffering. It's part of what we endure. And taking up the cross is willingness to suffer in order to obey. So, an enemy of the cross is someone who puts their rights and their privileges first. And they're more concerned with themselves and with their well-being than they are with God's will and with following Christ. They're an enemy to the cross, like Peter. Not so, Lord! You're not, there's no cross in this thing. It's only a crown. There's no need to suffer. An enemy of the cross is someone who wants a repentance-free and confession-free Christianity. Someone who can justify their sin, someone who can continue in compromise and still claim all of the blessings and privileges of being known by him. With no desire to be holy. And then finally, someone who can claim the promises, but have no obedience to Christ at all. They are considered an enemy of the cross. Their confession is Christ. They'll get baptized, they'll wear a t-shirt, they'll slap a bumper sticker on their car, they'll wear a cross around their neck. Their confession is Christ, but there's, their allegiance is with the prince of darkness. And notice there in verse 19, back in uh, Philippians there, what Paul says about those people. In verse 19, he says, whose end is destruction. Isn't that scary? 
that there are people in our midst, people that claim to be walking with Christ. They're in our churches. They're, they're, they're with us in our fellowships. They're at our meetings, our home Bible studies. They're, they're in our prayer groups even at times. And Paul says they're not even saved. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he gives us the second mark of a poser or a make-believer. And that is not just their allegiance, but now also, if you want to find a make-believer, just look at their appetites. Again, in verse 19, he says, Whose end is destruction and whose God is their belly. The word that's translated belly is the word in the Greek. It's, it means appetites. Their God is their appetites. And Paul is telling us, he's saying that when you look at these people and you look and you examine their life, you'll notice that they are driven by the appetites of their flesh. They live to indulge whatever appetite is calling at them at any moment it might be calling at them. When they're hungry, they eat. When they want pleasure, they indulge in pleasure in whatever way that might be, whether it be through intoxication or whether it be through experience or whether it be through some sexual relationship. They just feed that appetite. There's no restraint. There's no control. When they want to watch movies, they watch movies. When they want to travel, they travel. When they feel like they want something, they go shopping. Whatever appetite is calling and saying, I want to be satisfied, they they just do it. There's just no regard. Their God is their appetite. That's, That's what they follow after. They don't follow the promptings of God's Holy Spirit in their life. They follow the promptings of their flesh. And they are obedient to their flesh. Their God is their appetite. Now, it's, it's interesting. He says, you know, that their God is their belly. And the implication is that they worship their appetites. Now, to worship something is equivalent to have affection towards something. That's what worship is. Worship is the thing that we give our affection to. It's the thing that we think about the most. The things that drives the decisions that we make. It's that internal compass. It's driven by what we serve. And Paul is saying that they worship their appetites. They they can profess Christ. They'll come to church. But while they're sitting in church, what's on their mind is not the presence of Christ, the appearance of Christ, the person of Christ. But rather, what's on their mind, what's in their heart, is what they're going to do right after. They're more excited about the meal they're going to have at at the restaurant or or what they're going to watch with the movie that they're going to see or the experience that they're going to have or the date that they're going to go. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I'm not preaching against those things. But we're here because we love Jesus. Paul is going to tell us, I'm getting ahead of myself, but he's going to tell us the first mark of someone who is truly a citizen is that their affection is towards the appearance of Jesus Christ. And why are we really here? Is this just a religious observance? It's, it's Wednesday night and we go to church and that's just kind of what we do. Or are we here because we want to meet with Jesus? Because we expect and understand and know and believe that he is going to be here and that he's going to speak to us. That his word is going to put light and fire in our hearts and it's going to change the way we live and it's going to draw us closer to him and we're going to be on fire for the things of heaven. Or is it just, well, we've got to get that out of the way. Wednesday night always comes before, you know, whatever, Wednesday night church. The desires and the deeds that we do dictate the deity that we serve. 
Their God is their belly, their appetites. The third mark is their affections. He says they glory, their glory is in their shame. It's always interesting to me when I talk to people what makes their eyes light up. You could be talking about the things of God. You could be talking about spiritual truth. You could be digging through doctrines of scripture and just conversing with someone and just having a heart to heart. And it can be good and it can be real. You could ask them to share their testimony. Tell me, how did you come to Christ? And they'll tell you their story or their experience or what happened at, you know, at this juncture of their life or whatever. You know, and, and you go through all of that. You can ask them what God is doing presently in their life. And, and, and they'll do it. But then, you know, the conversation or the time goes on, and all of a sudden the topic changes, and somebody mentions, hey, did you see the voice last night? And all of a sudden they come to life. Their eyes light up. That's glory. Do you know what that's what glory means? It means the light, <laughs> the Shekinah, the glory, the, 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 the presence. And, and what, who, what, is our, what is our glory in? And Paul says that their glory is in, in other things. It's funny, you know, people will come to church and then all of a sudden, like someone will say something a little bit off color, maybe not even on purpose. They'll, they'll say something that has, you know, an innuendo or an insinuation in it or something. And all of a sudden you see some people <laughs> and they start to they start to light up, you know, that moves them. Or, or someone tells a dirty joke and it's like, oh, yeah, I know that one. And, and they just come to life. They were they were dry and, and dark, but they just came to life. Their glory is in their shame. What makes a person light up? When does a person get excited? Paul says their glory is in their shame. And then finally, he draws attention to their attention. He says the fourth mark of a poser is the thing that they put their mind on. He says their glory is in their shame and they mind earthly things. Their mind is always on the things of earth. They'll profess heaven. They'll talk about heaven. They'll show up when we do things that have to do with heaven. But inwardly, their heart is consumed and gripped by the things of earth. 1 John chapter 2, 16, verse 16, the apostle John says, All that is in the world, the earth, the earthly things, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts. And Paul says, you can always find someone who is an enemy of the cross or a make-believer because their mind is always consumed with earthly things. The things that their flesh desires, the lusts of the flesh. The things that are appealing to their eyes, the lusts of their eyes. And the things that are that which will fill them with self-worth or the pride of life, their investments, their career moves, their jobs, their estates, all of the affairs, their retirement, all of that which is earthly, that those are the things that are in the mind of someone who is a make-believer, a poser, someone who is walking even among us. And Paul says, I warn you, even with tears, I'm weeping. Now, what does it take to get a grown man to weep? Paul is saying, I'm warning you with tears that this, this person exists. They're not a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, and yet they profess to be, they claim to be, but they're really not. 
He says that their allegiance is to themselves. Their appetites are for the things that gratify the flesh. Their affection is for that which God abhors. And their attention is consistently fixed upon the things of earth. And he says that their end is destruction. No matter what they say with their mouth. If they're not born again, if they haven't become citizens of heaven, they're not saved. Now, he goes on, after giving us the contrast of a citizen, to tell us the marks of those that are citizens of heaven. The true citizen, there in verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he says that our citizenship is in heaven, and he puts it in the present tense. That it isn't something that will be when Jesus appears that then we get our green card or our passport or our new birth certificate. But he says that in the present tense, right now, if you belong to Christ, you are in heaven. Your citizenship is already in heaven. The documents are signed, they're submitted, they're sealed and stamped, and it's a done deal. Now, there's no such thing as dual citizenship. And that means that if that document's been signed, sealed, and secured, then you are no longer a citizen of earth. That makes you a foreigner. You realize that? It makes you and I foreigners on this earth. In fact, that's very consistent with what we read in Scripture. In the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the writer is giving to us what's called the Hall of Faith. And he reaches through the chronicles of Israel's history and he gives short little excerpts of those that had faith in the Lord during their lifetime. He starts with, with Adam and he, then he talks about Noah and he talks about Abraham and Sarah and he talks about Joseph and Jacob and then he moves into Moses and then he talks about you know Je- Samtha, Samson and Jephthah and, and he works his way. Isaiah who was sawn in half and he just gives this list on and on and on and on of all of these people who were citizens of heaven, even while they had occupations on earth. And he says this concerning them in verse 11 of, or yeah, verse, I don't know what verse is, verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to what Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, says about them. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and they were persuaded of them, and they embraced them. And listen, it says that they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims upon the earth. That is, that they were aliens and foreigners. Their citizenship was not here. They didn't belong. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. The Apostle Peter says this. Oh, no, it's not verse 21. It's verse 11. He says, Dearly beloved, and he's speaking to you and I. Think of it as though Jesus Christ himself, the king of our kingdom, is talking to you. And he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He's saying, listen, this isn't our home. We're not citizens here. And if you're truly saved, that's the first mark of someone that, that, you, that you're a citizen of heaven is that this ain't home anymore. You, you can never feel quite right here. You're never quite fit in. Even with people that at one time, they were like your kindred spirit. You know, you, you used to, 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 to live alongside of them and, and you breathed alongside of them and their lives were intertwined with your life. But then you come to Christ 
And all of a sudden, these people that were once so important to you, the most important to you, for some reason, there's this disconnect. There's a detachment because you're, something changed, something happened, you know. You go in, you're in the midst of family, and I don't know if you experienced this when you were saved, but, you know, you never had a problem before Thanksgiving at Christmas. I mean, yeah, there was always the problem over what happened to the cat 20 years ago. You know, that's never quite gone away. There's always those things. But they're family until you get saved. And then there's, there's something that happens. There's a, there's, a, there's a divide. There's a detach. Why? Because we're, we're pilgrims. We're strangers here. We're, we're citizens with, with him, with the saints. Our home is heaven. Our hope is the future. He says our citizenship is in heaven. And then he gives us the four attributes of the citizen of heaven. He begins now with our allegiance. He says, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look for the appearance. Our affection. Our allegiance. The thing that we long for, the thing that our heart hungers after is the appearance of Christ. That's the first and highest mark of someone who is truly a citizen of heaven is that that's what they are living for. There's a verse, it's in the book of Jude. It's in verse 3 of Jude. Let me read it to you. It says this, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. He talks about two things in that verse. He talks about the common salvation and the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Now, he uses the word faith there. Do you know what faith is? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it tells us this. It says that faith is the evidence of of things hoped for, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Listen to that. That faith is the evidence of things not seen. Therefore, follow me here, if something is had by faith, it has not been seen, right? Now Jude is talking about a common salvation. He's talking about the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. That means this. Listen carefully. Here's Abraham. He's in Ur of the Chaldees. He's living, he's living in the lap of luxury according to the standards of his day. It was one of the richest places on the planet when Abraham was an inhabitant there. And he was much like a citizen of the United States of America. But there was something in his heart. There was something unsettled wherein he knew that God, the living God, the God that created the heavens and the earth, was calling him. And the Bible says that by faith, Abraham responded to the call of God that was not heard audibly with his ear, nor was it observed physically with his eyes. But that God drew him by his heart in the silent place and whispered to him that there is more. There is a God. There's something real. There's substance beyond what you've experienced here on this earth. And he called Abraham out and he began a relationship with Abraham where Abraham started with a simple faith. And then he had to go through some trials. And then he experienced some struggles. And then he had some seasons of failure where he completely blew it and went off his rocker. 
He made huge mistakes where he stepped way outside of God's will, but then experienced God's grace and forgiveness and then was brought back into that fellowship, into that unity with God. He was brought into maturity, into a place where there was stability in his life and peace and fruit and reality. And he knew the true and the living God, even to the point where he was willing to offer up his only begotten son, Isaac. And the relationship and the depth that Abraham had by faith, having never seen God at any time, having the same set of senses that you and I have, the same struggles that you and I face, the same obstacles that keep us from so often hearing his voice or being what we want to be in him. Abraham went through the same thing. It's a common salvation. It's the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. I think of Jacob, who here, he just, all he, all he gets is this little piece in his mind that there's a blessing. That there's something to be inherited. There's a patriarchal meaning to what Abraham discovered, and I want it. And so he worked his way into receiving that blessing, not even knowing what it was. And for the next 25 years, he went through that same path that Abraham had experiencing the presence of God as he went, watching God cultivate in his life and work things out, making mistakes and failing, but then coming back and experiencing redemption and forgiveness, experiencing growth in his walk with the Lord and coming to a place of stability, a place of brokenness, a place of fruitfulness, a place of depth where this wasn't a religion. It's not a book. It's not a tradition. It's not something that we just do. It's something that's real. There's substance to it. It's life. And then he handed that down to his son Joseph, who has a dream when he's 17 years old. And at the age of 17, this young man Joseph just has this sense that there's something, there's more. God has a plan for me. God has a purpose. There's a God and he's real. And he tells his dreams to his brothers and he begins walking this common road that was walked by his father Abraham, by by Jacob, his father, and by Isaac, his, his grandfather. And he starts walking down this road and all of a sudden he's experiencing trials. He's experiencing setbacks. He's experiencing betrayal. He's experiencing suffering. And God is meeting with him in all of that. God is shaping this man. He's giving him wisdom, never seeing God. Never audibly hearing anything from God, but simply by faith receiving that there's something more than what we're experiencing here on this earth. Ultimately, God bringing him to the place where where he's a prosperous man, where he's blessed, where he's elevated. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. He's wearing the ring of Pharaoh and there's stability in his life. There's a presence of God about him. There's a respect and a command that he has, not because of who he is, but because of what God has done in his life. And it's real. And then it goes on, and then there's Moses. And it comes into his heart. One day he looks into an Egyptian mirror, and he sees his nose, and he sees the features of his face, and he realizes, he says, I'm I'm a stranger here. I'm not an Egyptian. I don't belong here. This isn't right. I'm, I'm one of them. And they're his. And therefore, I belong to him. And there's all the glory of Egypt. I have it, but for some reason, it's missing something. It's lacking something. And he forsakes it. And he begins this walk with God, where ultimately he finds himself for 40 years on the backside of the desert, not knowing what plan God could have for him, not knowing what was to be, but all the while, God cultivating, God deepening, God revealing himself through faith to this man Moses, birthing reality and depth in his life, something that lasts, something of substance, something that lasts beyond the lifespan of this earth, 
something that goes into eternity and way beyond, way bigger than what anyone could have ever comprehended, even Moses himself. And yet God brought him there, this common salvation that was once delivered. And you go through the chronicles of history and you see Joshua, you see Caleb, you see David, you see Daniel there in the lion's den, making it through a 70-year reign where God investing in this man's life and making him into something that's going to last for eternity while he's experiencing life. And then you go through the prophets and you see what, how God called this man Isaiah and Jeremiah. And they were nothing different than what we are. They were men of like passions, just like you and I. But they responded, there's something more. And then, this common, unidentifiable man comes on the scene. This preacher from Galilee who nobody knew from a hole in the wall. And word begins to spread about this carpenter's son who's supposedly a nobody, but he speaks like no one has ever spoken before. The things that he does, the way that he deals with people, the grace that's in his voice and his words. The power and the presence of God that shows up when he speaks. What is it about this man? And it's amazing, isn't it, that the only way that God could could put truth in the eyes of people is to put it in something so plain and so common that no one would recognize it. Because if it was flashy, we, we would be like, yeah, that's a lie. But God said, no, it's not. It's real. This is real. And this man, this prophet, this teacher, this Christ, he was nailed to a cross. And this man who everyone thought to be something seemingly turns out to be nothing. And he dies on a hilltop in Jerusalem in obscurity. But he didn't. Because that one seed, that one man, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who is mysteriously and yet sovereignly working throughout all of history, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down through Daniel and the prophets, through John the Baptist, even to his day, that day as he died, a seed was planted. That one life, those gracious words, the things that he did, 40 days later, they germinated. And 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 people by faith responded in the same way that Abraham had thousands of years ago. And they began to walk. And they began to go through trials and tribulations and sufferings. And they began to be led. And they began to be deepened. And they began to experience God's voice and God's truth and God's reality. And then 3,000 became 5,000. And then 5,000 became 10,000. And then this one seed turned into new churches in new regions, new areas new apostles, new missionaries that would carry forth this message, this word that, hey, there's a God and there's a gospel and there's salvation and there's life and it's eternal, it's not temporary. And those churches in those regions have reached on through the decades, through the centuries, through the millennia. And listen carefully, you and I and the life that we experience through Jesus Christ is the result of that one man who laid down his life there in 
Israel, and he is returning. He's coming back. And when he appears, that's what Paul's talking about here, the appearing that we are looking for. It's the mark of our citizenship. We're looking for his appearing. And when he appears, we're going to be with him. And listen to what's going to happen in that moment. You're going to see Abraham. You're going to see Isaac. You're going to see Jacob. You're going to see Joseph. You're going to see Moses. You're going to see Caleb and Joshua. And you're going to see Jephthah and Samson. And you're going to see David and Samuel and Saul, maybe. You'll see, you know, you're going to see all of these people. You'll see Isaiah and Jeremiah. You're going to see John the Baptist. You're going to see Peter. You're going to see Paul. You're going to see Epaphroditus. You're going to see Stephanus and his household. You're going to see Cornelius, who was, who was reached there in Acts chapter 10. You're going to see the, the women that were fighting here in Philippi, the Euodius and Syntyche. And you're going to see ten thousands upon ten thousands of people that by faith realize that there's something more than what we can just simply see and hear. And in that moment, listen carefully. Everything that you thought was just, oh, well, we go to church. Eh, it's a Bible study. Eh, we could go where we could stay. Yeah, he's a Christian. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Oh, I don't know if he's saved. It doesn't really matter to me. All of a sudden, we're going to realize in that singular moment when he appears how big this is. And at that moment, that's all that's going to matter. It's nothing else is going to matter. All we're going to do is say, oh, goodness, I hope, I hope my life counted. That's what Paul says is the mark of a citizen. Looking for the appearing of Jesus Christ. Living for that moment when the God of all gods, the God who said, let there be light and there was light. And the God who will return and say, I make all things new. That everything that ever was revolves around that God, that Savior. And we have the calling and the privilege and the blessing of living our life for him the appearing of jesus christ it's the first mark of someone who is truly saved it's our allegiance well we're out of time as usual but you can read ahead and i'm just going to read you the list of things and you can harvest it yourself he goes on paul and he says In verse 21, that he shall change our vile body. The citizen of heaven has a very low estimation of the flesh. See, the the, the make-believer lives for their flesh. The citizen of heaven hates their flesh. Paul said to the Romans, Romans chapter 7, he says, In me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good And every citizen of the kingdom has at some point or is in some way coming to that realization that this flesh is vile. Do you know that? No, no, no. Deep down, I'm really a good person. Compared to who? That's the question. Next, he says that our appetite, he says, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. We're waiting for a mansion. Hey, The body that you and I have 
in the Bible is always compared to a dwelling place. Paul called it a spiritual house. That's our body. It's a house. Peter took it one step further and twice he called it a tent or a tabernacle. He said, this body that you and I have, it's just a tent that our spirit lives in. That's a good comparison, isn't it? Because a tent is a temporary dwelling place that is unreliable, that leaks, and that's unstable. That's a great description of our bodies, isn't it? Why is that significant? Because here's what Jesus said in John 14. He said, let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Listen, the mansion that you and I, if we take the Bible in context and look at a dwelling place as it consistently stands out in Scripture, that mansion he's talking about ain't no castle with crystal doors. It's a glorified body. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that he's going to change our vile body and he's going to make it like unto his glorious body. You might have it as it reads in the Greek, the body of glory. We're due for an upgrade. And when he comes, the body that we will receive will be the difference between a tent and a mansion. If you can understand that, I can't. Senses that you and I haven't even experienced yet. Abilities that you and I don't know exist. Glory that Paul says is not even worthy to be compared with the sufferings of this present time. That's what awaits us. That's what we hunger for. I don't know about you, but I hunger for that. I'm not perfect. Sometimes I slip and my appetites aren't what they're supposed to be, but oh, Lord, come. End this death sentence, you know. And then finally there, He says, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And this is the last mark of a true citizen. And that is this, is that they are people of surrender. He is able, listen as we close, he is able to subdue all things unto himself. That means that there is no area of your life that is too strong for him to get control of. There is no habit, there is no sin, there is no relationship, there is nothing that is too powerful for him to control, for him to fix. There is no attitude that he cannot change, there is nothing that he cannot do. He is far above all principalities and powers, there's nothing that's too hard for God, nothing. But the agent that allows him to do those things in our lives is our willingness to surrender. And if we aren't willing to surrender our lives first and then every area of our lives to him, then he, as a gentleman, stands back and he waits. But the mark of a true citizen of heaven is someone who allows him to do that work by constantly putting their life before him and saying, Lord, I can't fix this. I can't change it. I can't stop doing this. I can't change this response that I have when this happens. I can't change my my passion for this thing that I know is wrong. He can. He is able to subdue all things to himself. But do we let him? Paul says a true citizen doesn't justify, doesn't compromise. A true citizen surrenders. 
and allows those things to be subdued. So citizens and foreigners. There's four types of people. There are true citizens. Lori, you guys can come. True citizens. They're believers. They're not perfect. None of us are. They're trying. They want these things. They want Jesus. They want more. They struggle. Just like Abraham. Just like Joseph. Just like David. But we want it. They're citizens, believers. Then there's illegal immigrants. Illegal immigrants, they want the benefits, they want the blessings, but they're not willing to take up their cross. They're not willing to enter through the straight and narrow path, the door. They want the blessings and the glory, but they're not willing to take up the cross. There are illegal aliens. And then, there are people who are citizens, but they're living for earth. They know the Lord. They've been purchased. They meant it. They're serious, but they've been so sucked in to the cyclone of slime that is this earth that we live in that they're being brought down in. And I think of Lot's wife. The second shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. And it was a warning because she was supposed to be saved. She was supposed to be rescued from Sodom before the destruction of God came upon it. But as they were leaving, it says that she looked back longingly. That's what it means. She looked back with longing in her heart. She loved the things of Sodom. And the Bible tells us that she experienced the destruction of Sodom. She was turned into a pillar of salt. Are you saying we should be afraid? Maybe. Where is your allegiance? Because if you're here tonight and you're claiming Christ, but yet you're living for the world, you shouldn't be at ease. Paul says, I tell you now, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Maybe there's some of you here tonight that you're not citizens. You have yet to give your life to Christ, to sign it over on the dotted line. The good news is he paid for it. You don't have to marry someone who's already a Christian. You don't have to get amnesty. You can come to Christ and you can be forgiven and saved freely because he paid the price. But you must take up your cross. You must come through the narrow way and you must repent of your sins. You cannot be dual citizens. That invitation is open. If you don't know Christ personally, I would highly recommend that you experience this life that he gives. And there's some of you that you're citizens, but you need to repent. There's areas of your life, and when you read these two lists, quite honestly, you can identify more with those that are enemies of the cross than those that embrace it. I would suggest that you, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you tonight, that you would respond to it. You would simply just cry out, even as we sing this last song, that you would just say, Jesus, I want to be free. I don't, listen, the things that he wants to do in your life, the depth that he wants to take you to, the the voice that he wants to give to you, the leading that he wants, the plan that he has, and yet for many of us, he isn't doing those things because we're allowing the simple things that we should have had victory over the first day still stumble us. Oh Lord, I can't get victory over alcohol. I can't get victory over lust. I can't get victory over... Listen, 
that was supposed to be done. He has more for you. There's greater mountains. Don't waste time. Because when he appears, that's all that's going to matter. Is Lord, how was my life lived for you? And he's given us the power to do it. May he give us the wisdom and the grace to surrender. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.